Father, let us praise you this morning, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend us this morning and infill us and incite us, O Lord, and excite us with the deep meaning of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles to the book of Romans. <laughs> chapter 10. We've been in chapter 9 for a, for a while. There was a lot of meaty subjects to deal with, and now we're in chapter 10, and Paul the Apostle is moving on and revisiting some of what he said earlier at the, at the very beginning of chapter 9. And so I'm going to read for you this morning the first 11 verses. My remarks won't even begin to cover the meaning of all of it, but uh, we'll take the first two verses this morning for our inspection and edification. First 11 verses, the apostle writes to the Romans, to the Roman Christians of the first century, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Father, we praise you this morning for this, your holy word, preserved for us down through the ages to this very day, O Lord. For our edification, may you be glorified on high by the remarks of your servant this morning. I pray they will be guided by your very hand. Amen. And then, so we have Paul again, beginning pretty much as he began in chapter 9, weeping, really, bemoaning, the sad estate of the Jewish nation who have not received their Messiah. And so he has this this new situation in the church. You know, the churches began in Jerusalem at the temple, if you remember back in the book of Acts. And those who were believing, among them were many Jews, and that ceases to be the case at this time in the apostles' missionary career. And he's seeing Gentiles flood into the churches, and he's seeing the Jews left outside, and he's bemoaning that fact. And so he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So as we see, he's going to model for us 
the essence of the balanced Christian life. And I want to labor over that quite a bit this morning. He's just argued extensively that those who are going to be saved will be saved. God has known them from the beginning. It's a doctrine we call election, not our word, it's his. He dispelled the fallacy of salvation by blood. And when I say that, I don't mean the blood of Christ, I mean the blood of Abraham. Just being related to Abraham was not the privileged state that many of his Jewish brethren believed it was. Salvation cannot be inherited. It cannot be bestowed on by our parents. And so once again, we see our Jewish apostle bemoaning the lost state of his Jewish countrymen. The salvation of his beloved fellow Jewish brethren has come into question, and Paul has demonstrated skillfully that Scripture has always held that salvation would not come by birth, but by rebirth. And so he witnessed firsthand that the church was taking root among the Gentiles. You know, there are some places in the book of Acts where we see Paul gets pretty upset with the Jews who are, I mean, the Gentiles are hard on him too in certain places like Ephesus and Philippi where he went into prison. But the Jews were very hard on them. And he pronounced on them at one point, and you may remember this, he said, I've done the work I can do. I've given you the gospel. He said, your blood is on your own head. He's appealing to Ezekiel, if you remember from chapter 3 of Ezekiel. If you warn the wicked man of his wicked way, and he doesn't turn from it, his blood is on his own head. But if you do warn him, if you don't warn him, his blood is on your head. But if you do warn him, his blood is on his own head. And at certain places where Paul was very exasperated with the treatment he received from the Jews, he said, your blood be upon you, I'm going to the Gentiles, and so he did. And so he became the great missionary, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And so we first saw firsthand that the church was taking root among the Gentiles, but the Jews still clung to this presumed sense of favoritism, ethnic favoritism. I wonder how that would play in today's society. And we go back right to the beginning, to John the Baptist. Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up Abraham, children to Abraham from these stones. And so he did. And here are the stones. And so the great churches of the empire were filled with Gentiles at this time and nearly emptied of Jews. And this saddened the apostle. And he contends, he contended all through chapter 9 that this was the purpose of God throughout the generations. Nothing new is happening, no new information here. And yet, he's still saddened by the fact of Jewish faithlessness and Jewish condemnation. And so the note here, salvation is by faith, which this passage so ardently brought about. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is by faith, Election is a fact of biblical theology. God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. He'll have compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And so we may rightly presume that those who are appointed for salvation will find salvation. That's really the the bulk of the doctrine of Romans chapter 9. And yet Paul prays for those who are currently unsaved that they will yet be saved. It's not a contradiction. There are two truths of the gospel that have to be embraced together for one whole 
doctrine of salvation, or what we call soteriology. And the Lord himself preached this very thing. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. And yet we are told to pray for the unbeliever. We're told to plead, even to bleed, for the souls of our loved ones who at this point in their lives show no concern, even contempt for the gospel. And so the Savior that says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, also pleads, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. And so the apostle, like the Savior before him, proclaims both sides of the issue equally true. All that the Father calls will come, and yet I will plead for all the others to come as well. Friends, we do not know who will be saved and who will not. Our doctrine clearly states, though, that God does know. He already knows. He knows because he chose. And the Bible makes it very clear. And no outcome will come as a surprise to God. It is we who will be surprised when we get there and we see who's there. And so due to this indisputable fact of theology, it's not really indisputable. People are disputing it all the time. But it should be indisputable by the plain language of Romans chapter 9. But because of election, some conclude that evangelism is unnecessary. We even talked about that in our Thursday evening session. Some would say, well, isn't there a danger in thinking that preaching is now unnecessary? That evangelism, seeking the lost to be found, is now unnecessary? How about prayer for salvation? Why would we do that if it's all a settled issue? In the mind of God. The number of the, same, of the saved is already written in stone. Actually, not in stone. It's, it's in a book. Yet at the same time, our God, who sovereignly chooses only some for salvation, also sovereignly appoints the means of salvation. And the means are prayer and preaching. And so Paul could say to Pastor Timothy, he could say, 1 Timothy 2.1, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Paul continues more emphatically. He even says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. By the phrase, all men here, if you're careful with the context, you'll see that he refers to men from every race and region, all types of men. People from every social status and walk of life, for kings and all who are in authority, he writes. And so certainly his fellow Jews are a part of the all men that he's intimately concerned about. And so we see the compassionate humanity of the Apostle Paul here. We see his love in his prayers. At the same time, we see his faithfulness to his doctrine. He's faithful to teach us the facts of theology as they're revealed to him. And so for him and for us, there should be no recoiling from the twin truths of salvation. Number one, God is sovereign. And number two, man is still responsible. In other words, if you find yourself in heaven with God one day, you'll not be able to say, see what I have done. You'll not be able to say, did I not choose wisely? By my own strength, I walked that aisle when the preacher called me down. You won't be able to say that. It won't even dawn on you to say that. You'll be overwhelmed by the glory of God and the unlikely person that ended up there. You'll not be able to say, 
what a good boy am I. Thankfully, I had the insight to see a good deal when it, when it was offered. You won't be thinking that way. I'm so glad that by my own strength I walked the aisle. No one in heaven will have any such thought. Salvation, we will see, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There will be no boasting in heaven. On the other hand, if you find yourself in hell, it will never dawn on you to say, look what God did to me. You see, in hell we get this new gift. It's not really in the scriptures. It's in Dante's Inferno. He calls it the foresight of the damned. You're able to be there in the sight of God for only a moment during your judgment period, and then you will know that you will never be in the presence of God again. You will not say in that day, look what God did to me. You'll know that your punishment is endless and that it's all your fault. You see, hell is earned. It's a thing you can boast about. You can say when you get there, I did this on my own. Hell is yours to earn. The psalmist said as much when he said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. But heaven's not like it. Heaven is the gift of God. If God was merely just, no one would be saved. But as God abounds in mercy, many will be saved. Now, this is the unique logic of the Christian faith. Justice means you get what you deserve. Mercy means you do not get what you deserve because someone else got what you deserved. That's what mercy means. Ken used to teach it like this. My old pastor, he used to say, if you get pulled over for speeding and the officer comes over and gives you a speeding ticket, that's justice. You were speeding and now you'll pay the price. If he comes over to the window and he says, you were speeding, but I'm not going to charge you, I'm going to give you a warning, that's mercy. And if he says you were speeding, I'm not going to charge you, I'm going to give you a warning, and you're welcome to come home and have dinner with us, that's grace. If, assuming somebody's a good cook in the house. Friends, if your doctrine makes you hard, let your love make you soft. Paul's doctrine was sure, it was concrete in his mind. But his love, his pleading for his brethren, was the softness of the man. You've heard it said, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. You know the tax collectors, the IRS agents of the first century. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? When your doctrine makes you hard, let your love soften you. The second verse, verse, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he's pleading for the Jews. Can you imagine knowing the whole Old Testament and not having a zeal for God that's according to biblical knowledge? It's almost unthinkable. False knowledge can only produce a false zeal. A wrong understanding begets a wrong application. He says in verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The Christian life is a life of priorities. Godly priorities will cover a multitude of sin. Put first things first in your life. We have a life of order. 
A life badly ordered produces a multitude of problems. It's my opinion that this verse represents the most important distinction of our time. Zeal can be a good thing, so can knowledge be a good thing. But one without the other is useless and depleted of its worth. Paul said as much to Titus. He said, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I would not try to quench the zeal of of good Christians today. However, zeal without knowledge has produced most of the problems you see today in the church and outside of it. The Lord would not have us sit on our hands, reveling in our understanding, but making no relevant contribution to the world around us, no relevant application to the teaching that we've received. Dig your talent out of the sand and spend it. That's my advice. Invest it in good works. It could be said that the Pharisees had great zeal, but Jesus said this to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Zeal without knowledge according to God. So zeal without right motive, zeal apart from understanding, apart from, zeal for personal gain, for personal acclamation or adoration or titillation or hyperventilation. I just threw that in there. It's sinful and destructive. I'll take it further. Sincerity, apart from understanding, is as destructive as zeal. They are, in fact, the same thing. Friends, you can be very, very sincere at a thing and be sincerely wrong. Christians can never be those people who say, yeah, everybody's opinion is valid. No, everyone has a right to his invalid opinion, but your right doesn't make it valid or truthful or even worth listening to. Have you heard things like this? She's so devout. She's so sincere in her prayers. I feel in my heart she's indeed a true Christian. You've heard it said, he's a tireless servant of God. Whatever deficit he bears in understanding, his sincerity and devotion make up for it. Surely he's a child of God. Let me tell you a story about sincerity. Perhaps you've heard it before. There was this group of men, very devout group of God worshipers, They would do anything to serve God. They would teach. They would serve. They would pray devout prayers. They would commit themselves wholly to worship. They would deny themselves creature comforts, immediate pleasures. They slept on the ground. They had no furniture. These men were among the most devout worshipers I had ever known. I can honestly say I had never seen such sincerity of belief, such selfless devotion, such tireless efforts to please God. And then they hijacked airplanes and drove them into the World Trade Center. Why? Because they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You ever hear the people of the world say religions cause most of the world's problems? They, the sad thing is, historically speaking, there's a lot to be said for that view. But if there is, it's because they had a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge of God. Our society today is full of unleashed zeal. Zeal untethered to reality. And what is worse, we see it in the churches. I have Catholic friends. Of course, I'm Italian. My wife is Italian. We grew up. You don't get Protestant Italians. You have to make your own. I have Catholic friends and family that are zealous and devout and overflowing with religious dogma. They attend the Mass every day. They pray the rosary. They are sincere. They are unashamed of their beliefs. They are genuine in their devotion. They are generous and kind and charitable people. 
And they are beloved, even by me. But they do not know God. I have to presume Paul's talking about that type of person in the Jewish family. I cannot help but think that he knows such devotion and sincerity of spirit among his fellow Jews, and yet their zeal will not of itself create understanding. And it's been my experience that it will greatly hinder it. So we have to be those who could make godly distinctions. Of course, sincerity and devotion and charity and prayer are good things and signs of genuine Christianity. But order is more essential than action. The Christian must put knowledge in the first place and application in the second. Knowledge comes first, and that's what purifies the zeal. You ever hear the term going off half-cocked? That's what we're talking about here. You've heard men say, follow your heart. Do whatever your heart tells you. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do that thing that you want to do. But the Lord doesn't say that at all. The Lord says, trust in the Lord with your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. You know, it's fun to dream. I'm a bit of a dreamer. But I wake up. Believers have to wake up. I've always taught my boys that a plan is better than a dream. Counsel is more reliable than a feeling. Feelings are good things. I wouldn't want to go through my day without feelings. I wouldn't want to preach a sermon without feeling, without emotion. It's indispensable to an active devout Christian life. Now, I say this because whenever I talk about this subject, people say he doesn't want us to have any feelings. Well, of course I do, and I respect your feelings, even the ones that are out of line and foolish. I would not want to live my life without feelings. And by feelings, we're talking about emotions generally, right? So feelings are good, so long as they're not first. Feelings cannot be the guide for the Christian. I'm sure the Jews Paul is bemoaning really felt they were right. Truth is always the guide of choice for the believer. Jesus said, I am the truth. I will send the Spirit. He will lead you into all truth. I asked on Thursday evening, is fire good? I always tell everyone in the Thursday session, don't answer fast. Think about it. I got a lot of answers. You know, I watched some serious fires this week. Did anyone see the the church burn in Spencer? Oh, my word. It looked like the Notre Dame Cathedral coming down. One of those old Puritan buildings with the big steeple, and the steeple fell into the burning nave of the building. There was a couple of houses in Brockton that burned. They were, you know, on the news, they love to go out and, (laughs) you know, film these things. So I thought about fire. I got a lot of answers. Yes, without fire, we would freeze. We use it to cook, and it's therefore good. Our vehicles run on internal combustion. That's a fire. That's an explosion inside your cylinder block of your car. We wouldn't go anywhere without fire. Fire has many useful, good, even life-saving uses. At the same time, as I pointed out, it can be very destructive. It's fearful. It can easily get out of control. And then the blessing becomes the curse. The good warmth we desire consumes us with heat. So what should we conclude about this? Fire is a good servant, but a hard master, a very destructive master. Feelings are like fire. Think of them that way. Your feelings are a good servant, but a bad master. Truth isn't like that. Truth or knowledge, as Paul puts it here, knowledge according to God, is a good and faithful, even wonderful thing. Truth 
is a trustworthy master. That's why Jesus could say, I am the truth. We trust in Christ is to trust in the truth. You couldn't say, I trust in Christ, but I don't like some of the things that he says. The whole of Christian history has wrestled with the relationship between unfettered zeal, zeal for zeal's sake, and the zeal that was according to knowledge. As soon as zeal becomes the main thrust of a movement, it's destined for failure. Even though his Jews had a zeal for God, they were tragically misled. Have you ever thought, as you're reading, very simplistically, sometimes my mind goes very simplistic, and you read the Old Testament, and then you just go into the New Testament, and Christ comes and makes all these proclamations. They were looking for him all down through. Every Christmas and Easter, we, we match the prophecy with the fulfillment of the prophecy, and we show how Christ fulfilled it all. And the Jews, by and large, missed it all. But they shouldn't have, right? I mean, we all agree they shouldn't have. That's what Paul's point is here. When he argued with them about about election and such things, he went to the existing scriptures, the Old Testament, to prove that it was always true. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Ishmael would not carry the covenant. We'd be carried by Isaac. Both were sons of Abraham. And he goes through and he shows it's not by blood and he proves by their own scriptures. They should have recognized Christ when he came. And if they did, all the Jews would be Christians. There wouldn't be any Judaism. They'd be Jews. You don't stop being a Jew any more than I stopped being Italian or American when I became a Christian, right? You don't stop being a Jew, but the Jewish nation would essentially cease to exist. They would have been the greatest Christian nation on earth had they received their Messiah. But they were tragically misled by their own ethnic zeal. There are many examples of this in Scripture. Think of Paul himself when he gave his testimony to Agrippa. We remember how Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. His whole life was changed. He said to Agrippa the king, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. Paul the apostle had to be the most sincerely misled Jew of his time, Saul of Tarsus. And then he goes on. He says, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the priests, And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You may remember he stood there at the stoning of Stephen. And he, I know, to to me it looks like he guarded their coats while they went out and, and killed the heretic. I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and persecuted them even to foreign cities. In other words, he tortured them until they gave up Christ in their confession. We all know the story. We know how it ended. When knowledge came to Paul, it didn't quench his zeal. It only informed his zeal. And informed zeal is a really good combination. And the same energy he used to serve Satan, he employed now to serve Christ. And when the Judaizers came into the churches of Galatia, you know who the Judaizers were. They're the ones that said, yes, you can come to Christ, but first you must follow the law. First you must be circumcised. First you must do all these things, and then you can become a Christian. That's what we had to do. That's what you have to do. So the Judaizers came in to the Galatian churches with their false teachings and this works theology, and they led many astray to the point where Paul wrote the very famous letter to the Galatians where he said, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. He goes on to say, they zealously court you for no good, but for no good, yet they want to exclude you that you may be zealous 
for them. And then he says this, it is good to be zealous in a good thing. That's really the essence of my message today. It's good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I'm present with you, when I'm not with you as well. Paul didn't like this cat's away theology. Even the Reformation that we celebrate so ardently in this church was rife with zeal that was not according to knowledge, and all of the, founder, all of the reformers feared it. They feared that when they broke away from Roman rules and Catholic requirements, that men would revel in their liberties, in their new freedom, and they did. As soon as Luther freed the masses from Roman Catholic dogma and falsehood, the taste of liberty led many to commit atrocities in the name of Christian zeal. Ever hear of Thomas Munzer? Munzer was an early Anabaptist, um, a supporter of Luther, but he began to stray from the word of God to what he called the inner light movement. That means he became so, so zealous for the word of God, he didn't need the word of God anymore. He received direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. He became, as many inner light zealots have over the years, increasingly apocalyptic and eccentric due to his belief that he was personally led by the Holy Spirit over and above the written word. Luther very famously said of him, I think he swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. I don't really like that saying, (laughs) but Luther said it about him. Um, His movement sought to overthrow all existing forms of government. Friends, I'm not a big lover of government, but it is a gift of God. And when we get to Romans 13, I'm going to have to tell you that. Um, Anarchy is not God's will. Thomas Munzer wanted to overthrow all government. His beliefs were some of the earliest views of communism as God's will for humanity. I could also point to the modern charismatic movement. You've heard of the health and wealth gospel. Friends, I have reservations about speaking about certain uh, charismatic preachers, television personalities, because I came into the faith through some of that preaching. Karen and I did early on. Um, But it was some of the most destructive, anti-biblical excesses of our time. These men taught that our covenant with God, signed in the blood of Christ, gave the believer a carte blanche for worldly abundance and success. All you had to do was claim and believe. The so-called name it and claim it. Actually, that was a name given to them. They don't like the name. The name it and claim it doctrine came out of it. These took the blessed promises of answered prayer and material abundance to a new and ungodly level. They became unable to distinguish between relative and ultimate good. They led many astray. Men gave of their earthly belongings far beyond what they could reasonably afford. You know, I remember when they did some good teaching in these, in these ministries. They taught that Christians ought to be good stewards with their money, not go into debt. They would tell us not to use our credit cards. I saw one the other day. I almost don't want to mention his name, but he is the absolute worst of all, and he's still out there. His name's Mike Murdoch. Anybody? I know Dr. Tom's shaking his head. Well, he learned that you can make a lot more money if you let people use their credit card because then they're giving you money they don't have. And they used to tell you to be good stewards, not go into debt. As long as you're going into debt for God, you can give God something you don't have, but just don't do it for yourself. And he was taking credit card after credit card. It was really disgusting, and he was one of the most zealous preachers 
that I've seen recently, leading many astray. Many gave of their earthly belongings far beyond what they could afford. The ministries got rich, the people got poor. But if you did become poor or sick or unsuccessful, it was your own fault. You just didn't believe hard enough. You know, I went to one of these things many years ago with Karen, and they were some zealous folks. It was 10,000 in this big arena in Teaneck, New Jersey. And they had what they called healing school. And they brought up all the people that were sick, just like Jesus might have done. And they claimed the ability through faith to heal them. And they all came up in their wheelchairs. And they all came up on crutches. And they came up with all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. And they went through this whole ceremony to heal them. And then they all wheeled them away. And they hobbled away just the same way they came up. And I began to think, what is this? This is zeal without power. They're claiming power that isn't there. It was one of the saddest things that I had ever seen. I really started to turn away from those things when I remember one preacher at Mullen Hill. His name was Tal McNutt. Anyone remember Tal? He would come out. He was, Bill remembers him. He was an old timer. He's probably with the Lord now. But he came off the, the pulpit and I said to him, what about all the charismatics? What about, you know, the the name it and claim it gospel. And he just said one thing to me that struck me so hard. He said, Christ died for my sin, but he didn't die so that I could have a Mercedes. And I thought, <laughs> apologies to people that drive Mercedes. But um, <laughs> I'm assuming you earned it and didn't claim it. <laughs> but uh, he said that to me, and it broke my heart. I thought, think of how horrible a conclusion that is. He's up there dying so my bills could get paid because I spent too much on my credit card. Bodily health and earthly wealth, which in biblical teaching are good things. We prayed for them this morning, but they are not the ultimate good. For them, these are signs of the true faith. You know, I got to tell you, and I'm, I don't want to ridicule anybody by name, but a couple of these preachers died of COVID and their whole ministries crumbled. They weren't supposed to be able to die of COVID. They're supposed to be immune by faith. Your faith made you immune to disease and exempt from material lack and financial poverty. It took what is low and earthly and material and presented them as tokens of true faith in Christ. They attract millions of believers. And so I'd ask you, how did the simple teachings of the gospel go so far astray of the truth? The answer is simple. Feelings, desires, hopes, and dreams run amok. Faith for the charismatic meant you get whatever you want. Faith used to mean whatever you get, you still trust Christ. Beware the teacher whose first course is to fulfill desires. Paul wrote, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their desires, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. Friends, when a preacher says that he's being personally directed by the Holy Spirit, how far does he want to take that claim? Should we write down what he said and add it to the Scriptures? Isn't that what the Scripture is? I remember I was in a Florida bookstore once, many years ago with Karen. We were down there on vacation, and I went into this Christian bookstore. And I saw this book. It said, A New Revelation of Heaven. Do you remember this, anyone? A New Revelation of Heaven? And uh, it was written by a woman um, in a church whose pastor um, liked it. She wrote it. It became a big bestseller, as these things tend to do. 
And what it was was, do you ever remember the, the divine comedy with Dante? Virgil gets taken through hell. Virgil, the, the Latin poet. And every day Jesus, uh, or rather Virgil, takes Dante through hell to show him the various levels of hell. She sort of picked up on that and she said that every day for 30 days, Jesus came into her bedroom and took her to heaven to show, give her a personal view of what it was like. It was a huge bestseller among Christians. And I remember seeing it in the, um, in the uh, Christian Coalition, right? Remember the Christian Coalition? It was a good thing. It was put out by Pat Robertson, who was a charismatic and all these things. And I saw it advertised in, in the Christian Coalition newsletter that I usually wrote for. And so I wrote to the leadership and said, either you have to take this woman's book out of your advertisement, or you have to take the revelation of Jesus Christ to John the Apostle out of the Bible, one or the other. Because John said, anyone that adds to this thing, I'll add to him the plagues written herein. And anyone who takes away from the prophecy of this book... God will take away his name from the book of life. So which is it? Do you want to stick with Revelation or with Mary Kay Baker's book on heaven? I never thought they'd do a thing. They took it right out because someone complained. Everyone should have complained. Zeal, but not according to knowledge. Some have answered uh, the question, are you being personally inspired by the Holy Spirit? And should you add your writings to the canon of scripture, some have answered with a resounding yes. Charles Taz Russell, remember him, founder of Jehovah's Witness, they're among the most successful cults on earth. Even though they reject the deity of Christ, the personality of the Holy Spirit, they claim to speak for him in day-to-day matters. The Watchtower mag- magazine is said to be directly inspired of God. Another successful cultist, that is a zealot apart from knowledge, was, remember Sun Myung Moon? Anybody? <laughs> the Moonies? A Korean preacher, leader of the so-called Moonies, was going to unite the churches and finish the social reforms by, begun by Jesus Christ. He claimed daily audiences with Christ. John MacArthur wrote of him, according to Moon, if his truth contradicts the Bible, and it does, then the Bible is wrong. In my early Christian life, there was Herbert Armstrong, Oral Roberts, Kenneth Copeland, L. Ron Hubbard, who's a little different. He started Scientology. I read his book many years ago. Pat Robinson could do things even the apostles never did. He could heal you over the TV station. If you were watching, he could heal you. Um, I don't think the apostles did. Well, they, I know they didn't because they didn't have television. But they all had great zeal in front. Some did great things. And I would go so far as to say they did great things for Christ and Christianity. Hey, I got saved through the ministry. But that does not take away from Paul's teaching in this verse. Surely we would all say that the Jews did great things for Christianity. We wouldn't even have the oracles of God without the meticulous care for the things that God had the prophets write. But even if that's the case, even if many people have been fed by their outreach, and they have, and even if um, many have been served the gospel, though it's simplistic and rudimentary, They certainly have spread the gospel. Zeal for God may not be put in the first place as the most essential component of life and ministry. Knowledge, truth, doctrine always has to come first. Truth has to be in the first place with any initiative that is to be attributed to the cause of Christ. In the final analysis, friends, our quest is for truth. 
zeal will take care of itself. If we develop a fresh zeal to make our lives meaningful for Christ, let it be according to knowledge. Lloyd-Jones warns of it. He said, first of all, let us consider the heresy of setting up zeal or sincerity in the supreme position. That is the fallacy of saying that if a man is sincere or zealous, it does not matter what he believes. We have already observed how common that position is today. And he wrote that in 1964. A genuine zeal can be recognized as a consequence of the knowledge of truth. Knowing the truth should give you a zeal to want to repeat it, to want to share it. When you've benefited from it, when you've heard the word of God and it's remade your life, you should want that for the people around you, just as Paul pleads and prays for the Jews who are outside the church. Zeal is an energy. It is a power to perform. So in and of itself, it's morally neutral. It's the driver of the zeal that adds moral implications to it. If the zeal is the consequence of ignorance, and in this case it is, then it's a bad thing. In fact, it's the most destructive thing on earth. You're not only heading for hell, but your foot is on the gas. The pedal is to the metal. If it's the consequence of knowledge according to God, then it's a good thing. So zeal should arise organically from within the believer who's been bathed in the truths of the gospel. When it's imposed by a clever speaker or whipped up by an emotional worship service, it'll be disingenuous and short-lived. If the same experience may be had at a rock concert as in a worship service, I am suspicious of the authenticity of the zeal that it produces. A false zeal is impatient with teaching. It dislikes being questioned. For the zealot, doing is far more important than being. It doesn't matter so much what I am. What matters is what I do. But Paul was there to put them straight. And to Timothy, he wrote, and I'll close with these words, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. These things command and teach. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would add understanding to this, the preaching, the proclamation of your holy word. I pray we will be guided through the scriptures by the attendance of the Holy Spirit, that our minds would be enlightened by his presence and application of the word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.